but I can remember sleeping in a hammock one night or trying to go to sleep and thinking like that smell is so overwhelming and then I thought to myself that smell is Parathion like I think I gotta get out of here but you know people's children and people will sleep in that room themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. I'm your host, Brian Binkowski, editor of Agents of Change and senior editor at Environmental Health News. Welcome to uh, longtime listeners and welcome anybody who's new here. Folks, it is frigid here in the far north along the Canadian border where I'm at, but the whitefish are biting through the ice. Hockey season is heating up and I'm making my way through a pile of books, recording some music doing all the winter things. I hope wherever you are, you're enjoying the season as well. That voice you heard to start was Dr. Mike Anastario, an assistant professor of health sciences at Northern Arizona University. Anastario and our assistant director, Dr. Yoshira Ornelas Van Horn, hung out for a bit at a conference last month, threw on some cozy hotel bathrobes, and had an excellent conversation. Anastario talks about his work in the corn and sorghum fields of El Salvador, where he did actual farm labor seeking to understand the relationship between workers and the land, as well as the way pesticides and other farm chemicals could be harming them. He also discusses his upcoming book, Kneeling Before Corn, Recuperating More Than Human Intimacies on the Salvadorian Milpa, as well as his decision to leave his former institution in Florida after so-called anti-woke bills made him question his place there. Enjoy. Hey, y'all. Welcome to a very special podcast. Um, So my name is Yoshi. I'm one of the assistant directors for Agents of Change, um, and I'm also an assistant professor at Columbia. And today I have a dear friend of mine um, who I actually met through one of the fellowships um, that we're both part of. Um, So I'll let Mike uh, introduce himself. Thanks, Yoshi. Uh, My name is Mike Anastereo. I'm an assistant professor of health sciences at Northern Arizona University, and I'm part of the JBP Harvard Environmental Health Fellowship that we're we're both part of. (laughs) So thanks for having me here today. Of course. And I actually have to let, for those our listeners know, um, I think this might be, if not the first, one of the first podcasts that we actually film in person in the same location, but also the special thing about this podcast is that we're actually both wearing bathrooms <laughs> because we're, we're, we, we happen to be at the same time um, in Atlanta for this workshop. So, um, you know, it just coincided that we're, we're trying to film this um, at the same time. So, you know, we'll go ahead and get started on the actual questions um, that you joined us here for today. And so, you know, I for our first question, um, we usually like to ask our audience, um, or not our audience, sorry, our guests, um, you know, what brought you to the field of environmental justice? Sure. Um, well, it began about five years ago when I was conducting ethnographic research with corn farmers in El Salvador. And at the time, I was just sort of focused on um, studying their entanglements with traditional corn varieties and trying to understand the ways that they grew those varieties and the intimacies that form between plants and people during the um, act of cultivation. 
And it was during that research that I sort of became derailed. Um, I, I started to focus on the agrochemicals that were ubiquitous in their life ways. And this wasn't my original research question. It wasn't the original focus of my research. But I kind of almost couldn't help focusing on it because those agrochemicals were impacting people's health in such profound ways. Um, so, for example, I had a friend who committed suicide uh, with an aluminum phosphide tablet. Um, I saw people with all sorts of um, agrochemical-related illnesses and injuries. And then, of course, there was chronic kidney disease of unknown origin, which was killing farm workers really young, and people didn't quite understand uh, what was causing it. So um, that's sort of what drew my attention to agrochemicals, and I slowly became interested in uh, environmental health through that ethnographic research. And, um, you know, and I, I do want to um, touch up on a couple of different things, but just for those um, audience that haven't heard of the word ethnographic, can you describe that a little bit and what, um, you know, what type of research that, that is, um, particularly for an environmental health context? Sure. So it's a, it's a qualitative method. And, you know, at the time I was doing ethnoecological research. So this is, this is like a type of anthropological research. Um, and, and basically what I was doing was um, a method that could be referred to as participant observation. So um, every day I was waking up at 4 a.m. with corn farmers and um, I would walk to the milpa, it's a small subsistence farm, with them every single day, and I would do what they do, so I did their work. Um, and I'd say about every 45 minutes to 90 minutes, I would take a break and go sit under a tree and write down my field notes about what had happened um, in the last interval um, be, be between note-taking sessions. And um, that that method can go on for months, if not years. It's a, it's a standard method used in um, the social sciences, but especially in anthropological research. Um, and so what you do is you take field notes, and um, my particular style of doing ethnographic research is I take those field notes, and then I digitize them um, later in the computer, and then um, over weeks, months, and years, um, you, you develop these very long sort of um, files that you can then code. And participant observation is just one type of ethnographic method. So it's the ethno it's the method that sort of grounded all of my ethnography. Um, but, you know, ethnographic research can include um, other methods. So, for example, I also did semi-structured interviews. Um, I did questionnaires. I did triads tests. I did all sorts of things. Um, but it was always sort of grounded in that act of participant observation, which is just sort of um, basic aim basically aimed at understanding people's everyday life ways and everyday behaviors um, and, and finding meaning therein. Yeah, no, no, I think, um, and, and we've talked a little bit about this, and uh, particularly bringing in that qualitative lens, and this is really where you get to know um, the context, right, and the stories, and I think particularly for agrochemicals or, um, you know, other uh, other fields refer to them as, as pesticides, because that's what we're, we're talking about for agrochemicals, a lot of the time, and, and I've done some some pesticide work um, and that data really the questions when we ask people if they've been exposed as you know do you use pesticides in your home or do you um, use pesticides in the field um, but the, the methods that you were using they really got down to 
being able to decipher um, what their everyday ins and outs exposures on the ground look like. And I think that was, um, and, and we'll get into the book that, you know, Mike, Mike wrote a book. So that's also one of the things I want to talk about because um, I'm, I'm like, I didn't read the whole book. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, I read the chapter on pesticides exposure. Um, and so we definitely want to get there. But um, I think, you know, particularly for, um, and I guess my question here is what, um, was Salvador and working with those farmers, like, how did you encounter that group? Like, what led to you actually, because um, I think in, in the past you had a Fulbright, right, that actually took you there. So can you can you tell us, like, how, how did that happen? <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, um, so, so it all actually began with, you know, I was doing quantitative research uh, before all of this, and I was sort of fascinated by grounded theory and um, just sort of inductive methods and inductive analytic approaches, um, but I didn't know much about them. So I began actually studying couriers, Salvatorian couriers, who bring sort of goods like clothes, hammocks, food supplies, gifts uh, between family members in El Salvador and sort of diasporic strongholds in the United States. And I wrote this book that was published in 2019 called Parcels, Memories of Salvadoran Migration. But in this sort of grounded theory approach, I, I eventually um, became interested in the ways that the food that was being transmitted diasporically was actually cultivated and grown because people were placing so much significance on it. You know, they were saying, oh, this, this food product that I'm getting from El Salvador, like in Boulder, Colorado, has this particular taste and it gives me this these particular you know, um, sensations and, and feelings. And so I, I became interested in, well, you know, what is that food made of? What are its constituent parts? Where did it come from? How was it cultivated? And I, I eventually started following people's families into the fields as they were cultivating the corn, beans, and squash, or the three sisters um, that co-occur in the milpa. And um, so what I did is I, I eventually had to stop that first part of the grounded theory experiment and publish the first book. But the second book was sort of an extension of that. But it was so different. The field was so different because it was focused on farm work and people's intimate interactions with not only plants, but also agrochemicals um, that I sort of saved it for a second book. But that's that's how I eventually got into it. So it was over a series of years um, that I eventually sort of shifted focus into the actual sort of labor of farm work. Okay. Um, no, that um, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think I want to touch a little bit on the how um, the, the corn, right, and how sacred it is for a lot of different cultures. And, um, you know, I'm by no means an expert on on corn knowledge or its sacredness, but I, but I know, um, and I think I've mentioned this before. Um, so both my parents are from Mexico, right? So I very much identify, um, as Mexican American and corn definitely has a, a, a huge history, um, in sacredness and, and, and both farming and, ev- and everyday use in Mexico. And, um, when you talked about like the different uses of corn, um, or, or that the food that you can trace it actually always reminds me of, of my mom who has this saying and I'm sure some anthropologists or sociologists have studied this but she's very much of the mentality that like yellow corn is for animals and that uh, the the other the other types of corn blue corn uh, white corn some of those other ones is what pe- what humans actually are supposed to eat so I don't know if there's an actual theory behind that but uh, <laughs> you know since you're the, the, the corn expert here <laughs> interesting well so so in El Salvador I would say most people like there's maíz criollo amarillo which is the yellow corn but people people will eat it but um they they would inter intercrop the corn sometimes with sorghum and sorghum tends to go to the animals. Um, 
but you can also make tortillas out of sorghum. But <laughs> um, it's also the hardest labor I've ever done pounding sorghum. But but um, no, the 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 corn itself. There were all types of varieties that were planted, but the one that I tended to focus most on, just because it was the one that. Uh, kind of cropped up most in Chalatenango, where I was doing my research in northern El Salvador. It's called Maiz Capulin, uh, and it's kind of like rainbow-colored. It has these beautiful, like, red and ruby hues to it, and I was absolutely enamored with it, and that's what most people were growing. Um, and yeah, the, you know, corn does have sacred significance in the region. Um, it's, it's, uh, it, it plays a heavy role in the Popol Vuh, which is the sacred text of the Maya. Um, grandmother Shumukane grinds, um, it, forms human flesh out of ground corn to create the first humans. Um, in El Salvador, especially in the region where I was working, there wasn't a lot of indigenous identity, uh, but there were sort of a lot of syncretic practices. So what I mean by that is like, um, you know, maybe you have a, a legacy of indigenous practice that's now been mixed with, um, you know, Christianity or Christian practices or understandings and beliefs, and that's what you're observing today. So even if um, the people practicing certain cultivation techniques don't identify a method as indigenous. It might have come from um, indigenous people in the past. Okay, so, so you know, now I, I do want to dwi- dive into the book a little bit. And, and I, I realize your book, um, which is titled Kneeling Before Corn, it doesn't actually come out until later this year, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I know you've described it as a very much like, you know, an academic meant for for academics in, in this area. Um, and, and in there, the, the chapter specifically that I, that I want to talk about a little bit was on um, agrochemicals. And in there, you introduced this concept of, of more than human intimacies. Um, so I want to give you a chance to, um, to talk about uh, what, that, what you're referring to in there. Okay, yeah. So my new book, Kneeling Before Corn, More Than Human Intimacies on the Salvadoran Milpa, um, it's a book that I, I wrote with two co-authors. Um, the first is Elena Salamanca. She's a Salvadoran poet who's currently doing her PhD in history at El Colegio de Mexico. And Elizabeth Hawkins, she's a San Salvador-based attorney. Um, so, yes, in the book, the major um, conceptual contribution is more than human intimacies. And those are what we define as everyday sensitivities to reflections upon and attunements to non-humans that are assembled with humans in their particular life ways. Um, So, you know, to talk about that in a less theoretical context, um, what really drew my attention to it at first was farmers sort of talking about having this remote sense of what's happening on happening on their milpa and happening with the plants. So, for example, farmers could be at their home and say, like, oh, I can sense that somebody's walking through my milpa, even though when they were far away from it. Um, that wasn't the only thing that happened that kind of fascinated me as a social scientist. You know, people would talk about um, having these really intense dreams about their milpa and what was happening on it. And sometimes those dreams would come true. Um, you know, so again, sort of like from a Jungian psychology point of view, I, I'm not a psychologist, but I was just kind of taken by that. And I was taken by all of the meaning and significance that people were um, d- devoting sort of to those topics and talking about their milpas. And so what happened is when I first started 
um, following farmers into the field and doing that labor, which quite frankly is is grueling. It's excruciating. And even as I did it my first day, I thought, I don't think this is for me. Like, I don't think I'm meant to be out here. I feel like I have a fever. I'm dehydrated. But what happened the first night after I did that intensive participant observation is I just had these overwhelming, like really visually stimulating dreams about corn. And it was like so pleasurable. And I woke up in the morning and I had slept for 10 hours. And I mean, I was exhausted. It was great sleep, but I just had this re- these really vivid, stimulating dreams that sort of drew me back. I wanted to go straight back to the field, even though it was a painful experience. And so that's sort of what drew me in and what helped me start thinking about this concept of more than human intimacy that I then studied ethnographically. Mm-hmm. Again, what, what I took a lot, so as I mentioned in the beginning, I, I work on, um, I've, for pesticides, what I've looked at is a pesticide exposures and, and asthma. And, um, but that data comes from, from uh, particularly in the context of California. And they've done a really great job at, of having um, pesticide use uh, data from you know spraying in different agricultural contexts, and so that data is publicly available. Um, and and I think for when you, in particularly this chapter, and anyone that does qualitative work, um, you know, I was very struck by um, in your context and with the milpa farmers, like we have their stories, and and you talk about the about, about you know them developing rashes or them having um, these symptoms, and there is also this chronic disease epidemic that um, is taught to. Um, pesticides are taught to play a role, a, a role um, but there's no actual data, right? The, like when we think about quantitative data. And so I think I, for, for this is, is very much when your type of work um, comes, comes through. Um, and I do want to um, dwell a little bit more into, into this topic because Ender, you, um, um, you, for, for one of the other things you like to use is your life history calendars. Right. And, and um, I think for some of us that do this work, when we ask people, like, have you been exposed at different stages of your life um, and some of the work that you you were going actually with with participants? Um, I was struck with when when you ask them that they actually define their their stages of your life differently. So maybe that's a, a, something that you want to expand on <laughs> as, a, as, a, as, a, as a as a as part of this. Sure. Well, I've seen I've seen epidemiological studies, which. I highly, I highly value and recognize the way that they're being done have, have to be done a certain way. Um, but they were, they, they've been, um, and again, this is just a methodological difference. Um, what was so different from my ethnographic data was just sort of the way that, uh, people were asked about their, their exposure to agrochemicals. So I'll, I'll get concrete by what I mean about that. You know, I, I would see people eating breakfast on the meal, but for example, like maybe we've worked from 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. and then we're eating breakfast and a farmer might say to me, oh, that atrazine tastes really bitter. And I would think to myself, I don't think anybody should ever know what atrazine, which is an herbicide, a toxic herbicide. I don't think anybody should know what atrazine tastes like. But it's because you have it on your hands and you haven't washed your hands and you're grabbing a tortilla and you're putting it in requeson and frijoles and you're eating your breakfast. And like, yeah, you're you're consuming a little bit of atrazine, <laughs> um, you know, or people would talk about um, their children getting drunk on Cipermetrina, which is cypermethrin. It's a, it's a insecticide that's applied to sorghum um, seeds. And, and I would think like, oh, okay, yeah, that's one way to sort of describe what you're seeing, children being drunk on sorghum, but they're, they're being intoxicated as children on sorghum. And so what became difficult is when I wanted to talk to people about their, their sort of memories of agrochemicals, I had to think about how to ask the question because um, 
especially if I, if the, the ways that we word it in English and then translate it to Spanish and, you know, an interviewer or a questionnaire administrator might word something really fast, like, have you ever been exposed to agrochemicals or have you ever used, and sometimes people don't even know what that means or pesticides. But so, so what I would try to do is ground people's agrochemical use in their everyday experience. So most people begin with fertilizer. And again, I know in environmental health, we tend not to focus on it because it's not considered as toxic as the herbicides and insecticides. But if you think about a way a farmer might budget um, and and go about purchasing something, usually first they're going to they're going to purchase um, or obtain fertilizers. And so um, in the corn growth cycle, you would normally apply like NPK at planting. That's nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium at planting. And then you would do that again and mix ammonium sulfate into the fertilizer after about four weeks and then apply urea, urea at um, seven weeks. And so once you're, once you're sure that you can obtain sort of those fertilizers and if you have the budget for it, then, then you sort of see what comes next. And for a lot of farmers I was working with, it was either Paraquat or glyphosate. But for me, in establishing the way somebody remembers agrochemicals, I sort of have to go through all those chemicals that we really don't care about. Because for them, it it anchors the agrochemical. So they can say, oh yeah, in that year that you're talking about right now, which might be three years ago, which might be 10 years ago, like I can remember that was a good year where I had enough money for not only all of those, but you know, back then Paraquat was only available. And then, oh, I remember in 2008, glyphosate became available. So you get these sort of complex stories from people about when and how they used something. And then I also just saw sort of everyday ways that people had exposures to agrochemicals that I think sometimes we don't think about when we're designing questionnaires. So for example, like I would often have to excuse myself from sleeping in rooms at night where agrochemicals were being stored because the smell of the chemical was so potent. And I thought to myself, like, I don't think it's good to be sleeping in mm-hmm. here, you know? So um, the the one that uh, really worried me most was parathion. So it was used to cover corn seeds to keep them um, protected from weevils and ants. But I can remember sleeping in a hammock one night or trying to go to sleep and thinking, like, that smell is so overwhelming. And then I thought to myself, that smell is paratheon. Like, I think i got to get out of here. But, you know, people's children and people will sleep in that room themselves. The other thing that people do is they put aluminum phosphide tablets into tin cans um, to cure their corn. Um, but sometimes they'll eat the corn too fast, or maybe the the aluminum phosphide will spill out of the can, and a little will get into the corn, and you know it's super toxic. <laughs> but but I often think about those things that we might never think to ask about or even include in a questionnaire. Um, so that's some of that data that came out of the the, the ethnographic data. Um, but then, sort of getting back to what you're what you're saying, I slowly started thinking about ways to have a more structured approach to asking people about this. And that's how I arrived at life history calendars. But it sort of took me years to get there because I had to do the ethnographic research first to sort of see how people were interacting with these chemicals and then like where they were getting confused in questionnaires and like where I wasn't satisfied with like life life history matrices. And we sort of arrived at life history calendars and I, I started experimenting with those. No, I think, well, the field thanks you. And, and I would agree with, with what you said earlier. Like, no one really should know what these actually taste like, right? I think we're all very much looking forward to uh, the upcoming book. And so, you know, to sort of change gears a little bit, I, um, I do want to talk about, uh, you know, some of the current more overall 
views on, on higher education. And um, you recently moved from, you were an assistant professor at Florida and, and are now um, at NAU. And I know that was uh, particularly because of a lot of the current views and attacks that are being done to the higher education system. Um, so I just want to, you know, give you a chance to, to, to talk about how that transition has been going from one place to another one. And, and, um, I know you also mentioned that this has actually improved your blood pressure. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, definitely, <laughs> you know, I think we can definitely get into that topic. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I was in Miami at Florida International University. I had a lot of great colleagues there. I really loved the people I worked with. Um, but it was just a strange time to be in academia. So I was in El Salvador for six years before coming back to the United States states. And, um, you know, I didn't think much about it at first, but um, the two pieces of legislation that were passed, um, House Bill 7 and House Bill 7051, those are known as the Stop Woke Act and the Post-Secondary Education Bill. Those sort of came into existence as I was at the university. And and again, at first, I was sort of like, mm, does this matter? What is this? Is this just for show? Is this sensationalist? But as I saw the legislation start to be implemented and it sort of result in, um, you know, the creation of websites or inquiries concerning textbook selection or, you know, textbooks being on file for five years. And I started to see the ways that that worked through um, the administration. And, you know, we were forced to do it. Lots of people with goodwill are just forced to be pers- to do things pursuant to the legislation. I started to get really worried about it. And then, you know, students in the classroom as well, they're, they're interested. They're curious people. They want to know what critical race theory is and why it's a problem. And I started to ask myself as an instructor, you know, often with many students who claimed minority identities in the classroom, I found myself saying to them, I don't know that I'm allowed to tell you. Like, I don't, you know, like, I don't, I, I think if I explained it to you, you would, you would see how kind of silly all of this is, but I actually don't know that I'm allowed to answer your question. And I thought at that moment, like, this is not why I came back to academia. Like, this is not what this is supposed to be about. Like, there's something fundamentally wrong here. And, you know, I worked with a lot of people who this deeply troubles. And and so, you know, at that time, um, I just had a lot of things going on in my life, but I thought, you know, maybe it's time to look elsewhere. So um, I did. And, you know, I got a, I, I found this position at Northern Arizona University. And um, again, there's tremendous colleagues out there with whom I'm working and I, I made the move. And, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons I think my blood pressure went down. <laughs> Getting away from House Bill 7 and a House Bill 7051 were certainly related. <laughs> but, um, you know, living in living in Flagstaff as well, it's just a beautiful part of the country. And um, it's it's a super fun place to be. And I, I really love that move. So, yeah, I would say that life has, has been better since moving. What we've seen in these past couple of years you know, where people didn't even want to say critical race theory because it, it's it's seen as so controversial. And, and I remember you, you telling us that, you know, the uh, outsiders were like looking through people's syllabus and, and banning textbooks. And it, it just seemed very, it, it just didn't seem like the right way to go about this. Um, so uh, I'm glad you found a home um, in my home state, Arizona. <laughs> Although not same city, but, you know, <laughs> so very much connected. So, so I'm glad Um that you're in this new environment that hopefully is more conducive to the work that you're doing and you're, and you're trying to advance. Cause 
it's definitely one of those things when you feel supported, not just by the people around you, but an institution and the broader community. Um, it very much helps get into the right mindset and you actually thriving and not just surviving. Right. Yeah, exactly. And especially in this field, like when you're doing work on health disparities, um, you know, of course, of course, you know, there's, there's always this angle at which, or or this point at which you start to think like, Oh, is this work going to become political or could this be, be observed in a political way? But at the same time, you're also just trying to advance the science for, for another reason. Like in my case, it's to advance the science of harm reduction. And, you know, when you kind of get diverted from that, sometimes I wonder if this is, this is half of what's going on here is to divert us from our projects, right? Because you start to question yourself. And when you're questioning yourself, you question your work and you stop doing good work because you're, you're afraid of what you're doing. And it's, it's just kind of ridiculous in 2024 now to be thinking like that. So yeah, um, having that sort of intellectual liberation has been, has been great. Uh, well, we look forward to more of your intellectual liberations. And, um, you know, I do I do have one last question. And this is the one uh, I'm totally stealing this from, from Brian, um, the uh, Agents of Change. And he usually likes to ask people who, um, who come on the podcast, what is the last book you read for fun? For fun? Yes. <laughs> when you say for fun. <laughs> for fun. Like, it, I mean, maybe you still, I mean, I know you find academia a lot of fun, so that's one you want to bring up. But usually, you know, people pick some non-academic tasks. Oh, gosh. I have to apologize here. So <laughs> I was really moved by this book. I wouldn't say, I, I mean, it absolutely it absolutely was fun, but it was hard to read. But I also just want to highly encourage that people read it. <laughs> so the book, the book was written by Isabel Stangers. Um, she's a philosopher, and the book is called Virgin Mary and the Neutrino. It was translated into English and published by Duke University Press in 2023. And it's all sort of about ecologies of practice um, that occur in the scientific community, um, as well as sort of debates between um, what we would think of as like, you know, bench hard scientists and either non-scientists or postmodernists and like where these sort of debates um, came from and how they operate. Um, It's a completely stimulating book. It's completely altered the way I see the world and even think about my own work. And I highly encourage others to read it. That's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed Yoshi's conversation with Mike. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangenej.org. And while you're there, click the donate button to support us or sign up for our free monthly newsletter or why not just do both. You can also find Agents of Change on X and Instagram. And please follow us on Spotify or iTunes where you can subscribe, give us a rating and never miss out on an episode. This podcast was recorded by Dr. Yoshira Ornelas Van Horn, written, produced and edited by me, with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Vina Singla, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lorai Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is Now Sun by Pottington Bear. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity and science and health going. Have a great week, folks. 